Welcome to the Unabridged Podcast. I'm Ashley. And this is Jen. Join us for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content to grow your TBR. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more about online book discussions and upcoming events. Find us on Patreon for extra unabridged content. Join us on Instagram and Facebook at Unabridged Pod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the Unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, and welcome to Unabridged. This is episode 236. Today is our August book club pick, and we are discussing Laura Gow's Messy Roots. Before we get started today, I just wanted to let you know that we are reviving our Patreon, and so you can sign up for that if you're looking for more unabridged content. To do that, you can go to our website and go under support us. So unabridgedpod.com and then under the support us tab, you can go there. Or if you're on Patreon, you can just search for unabridged pod. And we are releasing additional content there. So if you're missing our weekly episodes, you can have a little bit more access to a little less filtered versions of our stuff. (laughs) Before we dig into messy roots. Let's get started with our bookish check-in. Jen, what are you reading? I am reading Lolita Tatami's Red River. And this is the second book I've read by Tatami. The first was Cane River, which was an Oprah's book club pick a while back. This one I am doing for a buddy read and it is similarly powerful. So in both of those, Tatami uses her family history as the basis for her story. And then she creates novels from them. So they're not entirely historical, but Red River includes photos from her family. The characters in the book are her ancestors. And so I think that process is really interesting. And she talks about that in the book in author's notes, but this one begins with a massacre of black citizens in Colfax, Louisiana, in the late 1800s. And what precipitates the massacre is this was during Reconstruction. And so Black citizens were able to vote for the first time. And so they vote in a white Republican as the new sheriff. And the white citizens who live in that town disagree and don't want him to be the sheriff. And so they basically want the guy who was the sheriff to continue to be the sheriff because they like the way he runs things. And so the black citizens decide to occupy the courthouse with the new sheriff until federal troops can come in to support their right to vote for who they want, basically, and to have that person take office. You know, from the beginning, there's like a little introductory section, you know, from the beginning that it turns into a massacre. And so it's one of those books that is compelling and suspenseful. And yet I I knew how it would end, but you don't know how each character's story will unfold. And so it focuses on two main characters. One is Sam Tatamy and the other is Israel Smith. And it's alternating between their points of view and their opinion of whether they should fight or whether they should back down, how much attention they want to draw to themselves, whether they both agree that it is their right to vote and to have their vote count and matter, but they disagree with how the aftermath should unfold. And then eventually the book 
goes through three generations, I think. I'm not quite at the end, but I think it's going to be three generations of each of their families. And then they end up eventually including Lolita Tatami herself. So it, it is just this fascinating blend of history and fiction. There are some documents that she has included that are absolutely horrifying, but quite powerful in portraying the way history unfolded and the way these people who had been enslaved had rights for a little while and then had them rested away. It's really heartbreaking, but it's also, you know, I think important to read and to understand the history of how all of this happened. So that was a very long explanation, but I really, I really am loving it. So that is Lalita Tademy's Red River. Wow. I hadn't heard much about that one, Jen. I knew about Cane River, but have not read it. And I definitely have that on my TBR. And that one sounds fantastic too. Yeah, this one was not on my radar at all. And then Tony of Read with Tony chose it as one of her read to learn buddy read picks. And I'm so glad she did because yeah, I hadn't heard much about it either. But it was absolutely, yeah, I, it just captured me right away. It's it's not a short book and it's not, I would say, an easy book. And yet I couldn't put it down because it's so well, well written. How about you, Ashley? What are you reading? So one of the books I'm reading right now is Stephen Raleigh's The Editor. I absolutely loved The Gunkle, which is Stephen Raleigh's book, one of his books. And it is the first of his I've read. He's also well known for Lily and the Octopus, which I've heard great things about, but I have not read. But The Gunkle was just, I thought it was brilliant because it was hilarious. I mean, laugh out loud funny a lot of times, but also spoke a lot of important truth about family and about grief and about dynamics between people. And so I just thought it was really beautiful. So that one had stayed with me and I found this one on my Kindle. (laughs) I'm always talking about shopping in my Kindle closet. This one was on my Kindle and I was like, Ooh, that's what I want to start with. So this one is about James Smale and he is an author. And early on in the book, he finally has a meeting with an editor who wants to pick up his book. And so he's excited about the meeting. He's been struggling to get his writing going in the publishing world for quite a while. And then when he goes in, the editor is Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And he is quite taken back (laughs) by this turn of events. And it's really flabbergasted. So the beginning is just hilarious because he is trying to recover in this meeting No one had disclosed this information to him, even though, of course, some of the people in his community were aware that that was what was coming. So he is shocked by that, really awed by her, and she is absolutely in love with his book. And it is a novel, but it is very aligned to his own life experiences. So as he gets into working with her, it's apparent that she thinks the end of the book needs a lot of work. And the work that will need to be done really has a lot to do with him unpacking his own (laughs) things that have come to pass in his life. And so the mother in the book is a central figure. He really loves his mom, but also has a strained relationship with her. When he came out as gay in his younger life, she really had to kind of choose him as the way, I mean, you know, early on in the book, you can see that that seems to be the backstory is that 
she chose him. His father was not supportive. Father's not in the picture anymore. And so in a lot of ways, even though she stood by her son, it caused this tension that seems to still be there a long time later. And so it seems, I'm still pretty early on in the book, but it seems that Mrs. Onassis, as they call her in the in the editing world, has this agenda to get him to do the heavy emotional lifting of unpacking his own situation in order to deepen the authenticity of his book. So I'm really enjoying it. It's been a lot of the hallmarks that I liked from the Gunkle that I had read. I am noticing in this one, I will say it's not the other one I found super compelling. And this one I'm really enjoying, but it's more of a slow burn, I think. But I think it's really been interesting and It's fun to read about someone who is famous, but in a fictionalized setting that kind of portrays her in a very human way. I think all that's really interesting, but pulls in some historical events, both about her life, but also about the time period that in which the book is written. And so I think all that's really interesting. So that is Stephen Raleigh and it's the editor. I really enjoyed that one. I thought I read that one actually first and I found it. It made me want to read the Gunkle even more. So yeah, I loved it. I will also say how funny that we both have these fictionalized historical novels That's today. True. Yeah. That's true. Anyway. Yeah. It's funny when you were describing your author, the author in the book of his, it was very much like, that's how that story is. So I actually feel like in this one, there's layers, right? Because to a certain extent, I mean, I don't know Stephen Raleigh's life, but to a certain extent, there seems to be some connection to his own life. But then the author in the book is in his novel, Right. Telling about his life experience, but in a fictionalized way. And then there's the Onassis <laughs> part. So yeah, that's, that is funny. It's a lot, uh-huh. of, yeah. a lot of storytelling mixed with real people. So we wanted to dive into Messy Roots, which if you're not familiar with this one, this is Laura Gow's graphic memoir. And it came out not that long ago. And I know we were both really excited to read it. So I just want to give a quick summary and then we will discuss. In the graphic memoir, Messy Roots, Laura Gao unpacks her life from the early days in Wuhan, China, to her new life with her brother Jerry and their parents in Texas. Gao explores her own journey to find her true self and how along the way she often felt either too Chinese or too American to blend in with others. Once in college in San Francisco, Laura began to feel more comfortable and at ease, but the outbreak of COVID-19 and the blame thrown on her hometown of Wuhan showed her just how quickly the tide could turn in a place that she considered more open and accepting. In this memoir, Gao celebrates all parts of herself, her Wuhanese heritage, her queer identity, and her American upbringing. So we wanted to share some overall impressions and some things that work for us, and then we'll give a couple of quotes. What did you think, Jen? What was your overall impression? I really enjoyed this. I thought that Gal did such a good job at the beginning of setting out her intentions with the book that she really wanted to celebrate her identity and that she was moved to do so both, as you said, in the you know synopsis because of COVID-19, but also there's a letter at the very beginning where she talks about the shootings in Atlanta in March of 2021 of six Asian women and that she is just moved to consider her identity within that community. So I thought that was really powerful. And then I thought the graphic format works so well to work through this memoir, to 
share the way that her identity grew and changed from her childhood through her current adulthood. I really loved the multiple settings and the way she showed herself at each stage of life and how she has like a different part of her identity to work through at each stage of life, even though all of it's ongoing, she does sort of, I was going to say level up and that sounds weird, but yeah, she definitely is switching and looking at different facets of her identity as she grows older. So yeah, I just, I really loved it. It was one, once I started, I didn't want to put it down. It is a fast read, which was really nice. And yeah, I think there was a lot of depth and a lot to consider carefully as I was reading. What did you think? Yeah, I thought that the way that she explored her changing experiences based on changing settings was really powerful and I think helped to highlight the message that she has about exploring her cultural identity and her understanding of herself and her understanding of her sexuality, that all of that was shaped to a certain extent by the settings that she was in. So like, I know, like you said, Jen, I really love the illustrations. I mean, I think she speaks really powerfully through her illustrations in the book. So we see early on what life in China was like for a very young her, and then what things were like in Texas. And I felt like there were a lot of times where not many words were needed for us to understand how she felt alone or she felt attacked by different things, shamed, you know? And so there was a lot of that where she was celebrating the different things that were good in each of the places, but she also was able to speak to how those settings made her feel small or those, you know, when she got to Texas, like all of these, she would try to cover these parts of herself in an effort to blend in more easily. And again, like what stood out to me was like the illustration parts of that and how through her drawings, she could help the reader understand exactly what that felt like. And I loved when she got to San Francisco and found such freedom. But then I also thought it was, there were two things that really struck me about that. You know, one was that she suddenly was shamed and embarrassed about her own lack of understanding about her own heritage. And so I thought that was interesting because again, we see that contrast of like in this new space, she still sometimes felt alone and ashamed and, but in a very different way than she had in a predominantly white area of Texas. And so I thought that that was really fascinating. So I think we see her in college and in San Francisco finding her space. But even in that, I think she does a great job of showing those trials and tribulations that still occur on that journey. And I think I think that's really powerful. I thought it was powerful as a reader, but I also think it's powerful for young people to see that and to realize that that's part of the journey of finding your way is going through some of those things that can be really challenging, even in places where you feel more comfortable. And then the other part I thought was really powerful was how quickly, I mean, I kind of alluded to that in the synopsis, but how quickly the tide just totally turned and suddenly a place that had been so welcoming. Unfortunately, I think Jen and I have lived long enough to where we have seen this happen when historic events have occurred, that suddenly there's just a mass shift in popular opinion and reception of people and how awful that is. And so I think we really see because she was in San Francisco by the time COVID-19 hit and started becoming apparent, 
we saw more than perhaps if she'd still been in Texas, that contrast between what had seemed to be an open and accepting place and what suddenly became cruel and vicious. And so I think we see all that. And I thought all that was really powerful. I agree. Yes, definitely. What was something specific that worked for you? So I really loved the visual style of the graphic part of this memoir. So I thought, you know, there were parts that were very realistic. And then there were parts where she was a bit more whimsical. So I love, like I said, level up before because she has this neat little video game style that she'll integrate into different parts of the book that look like an Atari or a very old Nintendo. And so as a someone who has fond memories of that from my own childhood. I got a chuckle with those. And then like I loved, there were more sort of fantastical parts like with the rabbit in the moon. And she would, when she was, when her emotions were really large, she often portrayed that through considerations of these stories that are part of her heritage, but that are also looming quite large for her and her consideration of her identity. And so I just thought that the way she manipulated the art to reflect the level of her, I keep saying level, but yeah, the the amount of her feelings, the strength of her feelings, the intensity of her feelings worked really beautifully. I, I just thought it was really striking. And I should say we read an arc. And so a lot of this were was done in black and white. There was a note that said that the actual copy would be in full color. So I do kind of want to go just dip into one because it was striking even in black and white. But I think the early parts that were in color in our ARC, you know, it's really interesting to see the way she uses selective colors to highlight certain parts of those images. And so I'd love to see how she does that in some of the later sections of the book. But yeah. I I really thought it was beautifully done and not just on a, the beauty carried meaning, which I think is one of the reasons we read graphic memoirs and graphic novels, because that can be so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That part with, I loved the incorporation of the myths and also the way that she would articulate her perspective on the stories and how that might be different than other Yes. people in her family. And I thought all oh, that was really interesting too, because again, I think there was a lot without using a lot of words, there was a lot of commentary about everything that she carried with her and how those things, the good and the bad were part of her journey to become who we see her becoming as a young adult at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. What, what about you, Ashley? What's something that worked for you? So one of the things I loved Like you were saying, Jen, I think that I really liked her incorporation of video games and myths and all the different types of stories and pop culture and how that impacted her as a person and then how we see it in her in her own storytelling and her own creation of her her journey and sharing that. But I think something that really struck me was the ending of the book and how she could have Having having just we're still in the pandemic, right, at this point. And we were certainly dealing on a global level with the effects of the pandemic. But for her and people who are of Asian heritage, but certainly for her specifically with Wuhan and being from the place that became the epicenter of blame, basically, mm-hmm. in some, you know, in some ways, she felt that much more than we have on a general level of everyone living through a hard pandemic that's impacting people's lives. 
So she could have ended in a very different way because obviously that has occurred. Again, we're still in it, you know, so you think as she is doing this and as it's publishing, we're not looking back. I mean, it's still very present. And instead, I felt like she really ends with this idea that the perfect place is not a place in the world, but is instead the world that we create and that we carry with us. And I felt like that was just such a powerful message because again, I think you could have gone a very different way as far as the tone, but she chose to celebrate the things that have gotten her to where she is and to, instead of bemoaning what is a very hard current reality, she celebrates this idea that you know, through her self-discovery, she can carry with her this special world that brings her a lot of happiness. And I just thought that was really powerful. So I really loved particularly that ending message that I think is throughout the memoir, but really is striking as you get toward the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So as we have both said, the illustrations in this are really striking, but we did want to share a couple of quotes that we found impactful. So Jen, what did you choose? So I chose one. I always feel like I'm cheating when I do this, but I chose one right from the end. So the quotation I chose is, every time I struggled to fit into the world around me, I thought if I flew far away enough, like Yi, the perfect home would magically appear. But when your roots are tangled up across so many different places, that perfect world may not exist. So I'll grow my home from the ground up using the roots I've nurtured with the people I love, which very much it just echoes, Ashley, what you just said. I thought that was so lovely. I thought I think the title, I didn't really think about it a lot until the end, but it is quite, quite powerful because I do think the book is this exploration of her roots and roots both in her story of Wuhan, but also in all the facets of her identity, of her queer identity and everything else. And the fact that a lot of it is very messy, as it is for all of us, that we all have these things that get tangled together. And you can't just choose one part of your identity and claim that and not claim all of the parts. And so I thought that was really lovely. I absolutely loved the exploration of her naming through the book. And the way at the end, it's actually right after this quotation, she claims both of her names. She claims her original name that she had when she was in China, and then also the name that she chose for herself in America. And I think, again, that is just this acknowledgement that her roots can mean many things. It's not just the roots that you're born with. It's the roots that you build, the identity that you build. And that it all gets tangled up together to become who you are. So I thought that declaration at the end was just this beautiful ending, but also this great nod to the title. And it all just tied up so well. So yeah, Yeah. I love that one. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah, I think that that sentiment is just a really powerful way to take charge of her own story and be empowered by it instead of Again, you know, some of the things that happened early in her life, but also that are happening in the present are certainly challenging to deal with, but she is choosing to look at them in a certain way without disregarding the impact of them. So I I think that's really cool. And it also made me think when you were talking, Jen, about I loved the cover and I felt like it also speaks to all the different parts of herself and how she is learning to celebrate all of those. And like, you know, you see kind of the different places that she's lived and how she's tied those things together as being part of who she is. Yeah, absolutely. What was your quote, Ashley? So I picked one that when she says, 
For the first time, I could breathe easily. My canvas was ready to be splashed with the boldest colors. And I loved seeing that. I loved, I loved her saying it. And I also think we see it in the art. But just that as she is able to recognize all the parts of herself, I mean, her queer identity, her Chinese heritage, and to celebrate those that as she's able to do that, I mean, exactly what she says, we see her breathing more easily and feeling more at peace with herself. And so I think, you know, we see that celebration in the book, but just like I said, for what worked for me, I think that that ability to communicate to the reader, the joy that she has come to find in celebrating all parts of herself. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. I love that. Well, we wanted to share appearing with you. So if you enjoyed Laura Gow's Messy Roots, then we wanted to give others that we thought you might like. And Jen, I see you have several listed here, which <laughs> of course, which pairing would you like to share with us? So I am going to go with, it made me think of so many books that I've read with fiction and nonfiction that I think would have great ties to this one, but the one I ultimately went with, she actually mentions in Messy Roots, and that is Jean Lu and Yang's American Born Chinese, which is another graphic novel that really explores uh, someone living in America who's, I believe his, it's been a while since I read it, but I believe his parents were born in China and immigrated to the United States in one of the storylines with him wrestling with that identity of being, you know, a second generation American who still has a Chinese identity that is quite important to who he is in American born Chinese. That is one of three threads that he weaves together through the book. The second of the three storylines focuses on the monkey King. And that one is based on a Chinese folktale. And I, I don't want to spoil it, but they do all end up being, intrinsically intertwined by the end. And so I really like that. Of course, in Messy Reads, again, I was talking about these different Chinese stories that she weaves into her consideration of her identity. So I think that's a nice echo there. And then the third storyline is this boy whose cousin visits and his cousin embodies these horrible Chinese stereotypes And that is the part that Gal talks about in Messy Roots. And so I think those three together echo a lot of the threads within Messy Roots. So I think that's a great pick. Again, it's also a graphic novel. So if you like that element of this one, I would say that American Born Chinese is considered to be a classic of the format. And so I think it's always nice to have those touchstones, but it's also just a great affecting story. And I think seeing the depth that you can get again from a graphic novel is really powerful. So I I keep seeing these defenses on Twitter recently of people who are criticizing graphic novels as not being worthwhile reading. And this is one of those books. Both of these are are books that challenge that notion that we should discourage kids from reading graphic novels because they're not real reading. So yeah, you can dive into these and these would be great ones, both I think to recommend for students. So Yeah, if you have not read American Born Chinese, absolutely, like Jen said, for all the reasons, it is very worthwhile and and a fast read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about you, Ashley? What's your pairing? So like you said, I thought of a lot. I mean, I think because this is a coming of age story and a lot about understanding who you are and 
celebrating that instead of turning away from it. I thought of a lot of different ones, but one I wanted to do is actually one that Jen had chosen recently, or we actually, we voted for this one, mm-hmm. but for a buddy read. Um, so some of you have probably read this one with us, but this is Melinda Lowe's Last Night at the Telegraph Club. And this is set in the night. So there are some big differences here. This one is young adult, but it is set in the 1950s. It is not a graphic memoir or novel. But the things that really reminded me of it, the things I think are complementary are the exploration of sexuality and also the feeling of that intersectionality between your cultural identity and then your sexual or gendered identity and how those how that intersection can be very complicated. And so I think that with Last Night at the Telegraph Club, we see Lily, who is a 17-year-old, and she's the central character. Again, it's set in the 1950s. And so one of the things that is striking to me about it is this is during the Red Scare. And so it's when everyone's looking for communists, it's in at the height of a lot of that. And so that that is happening and Lily and her family live in Chinatown and there is paranoia that abounds as far as communism, but particularly for the Chinese American community, they feel very aware. Her parents are very aware of anything that could seem in any way like it is communist or in in any kind of support of what's going on at that time in China. And so there's a lot of that that's explored. And again, that part is quite different. But I do think the thing that really reminded me in that part is how quickly the tide turns and that same idea with COVID-19 that all it takes is an event, even kind of just a mood that overtakes people. And then once that happens in a nation where your family might have felt very at ease, suddenly they don't feel at ease. So we see that happening with her family and her dad, who's a doctor and very respected in the community, is suddenly in a lot of jeopardy, basically, because because he's not willing to help them root out somebody they consider to be a communist. He has no proof that the person is, but because he won't support them, then he puts himself in jeopardy. So again, you see somebody who because of their integrity is being challenged and his family is getting uprooted to a certain extent. So we really see that happening. And I did feel like, like I said, although it's a very different historical time, that is a similar phenomenon, unfortunately, to what happened when COVID-19 started to emerge and what we see Laura Gauss explore with the way that Wuhan was portrayed in the news and how that impacted her daily life. So I think there's that similarity. But then the other thing that was really striking to me is that Lily is going to a club. So this is actually before it was even allowed for people to go to clubs where there were same-sex couples. And so there is actually like legal, a lot of legal stuff that is prohibiting people from being openly in same-sex relationships. And so we really see that oppression happening, not just with Lily as she's coming to understand herself, but more broadly in the community of women who are young women and who love each other, but that can't be together in any kind of open way. And so we really see that happening. But even though the easier road for Lily would be to hide who she is and everybody, as as things become more apparent, you know, Everybody is kind of trying to point her in that direction, but she is trying to discover herself. And so I think you see some similarities there as far as young people who 
are trying to do the right thing for themselves and who they really are at their core instead of giving in to what might be an easier short-term solution, but makes them feel less full. So I thought there were a lot of similarities, but again, I think the two things that really struck me about it were just like that cultural setting and how that can really impact your individual experience. And then also just that exploration of queer identity and what that can look like for a young person. Mm -hmm. So that was Melinda Lowe's Last Night at the Telegraph Club. Yeah, I think that's a great pairing. I love that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was great. I hadn't read any of hers. You were saying you'd read more of her stuff, Jen? Yeah, so that she is quite diverse in her genres. So I've read Ash, which is a retelling of Cinderella and... Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I can't think of the title right now, but she has a sci-fi series that I really like. Yeah. So she, she really bridges a lot of genres. I I'm always amazed by authors who can do that. Well, yeah. Well, in this one, I mean, I was really amazed by the historical fiction aspect Mm -hmm. of it, like all the historical components. So yeah, it's really cool. So we're going to end the discussion of messy roots with our bookish hearts. What do you say, Jen? I'm going to say five. I really, I really enjoyed it and I would definitely recommend Yeah. And for a wide range of readers, I think it would be a great pick. How about you? I'm going to go with five as well. I thought it was accessible, but powerful. And I really enjoyed it. We're going to wrap up today with our Give Me One. And today is an audiobook recommendation. Jen, what's your pick? I have been loving some mystery series on audio. And this summer, I read the first two books in Richard Osmond's The Thursday Murder Club series. The second one is The Man Who Died Twice. And these are about a bunch of older people at a retirement community who get together on Thursdays and dig into unsolved murders. And then they get wrapped up into some actual solving of murders. And they are a lot of fun. And the narrator is Leslie Manville, who does a great job. So those are great. How about you? So mine, I went to recommend a mystery series (laughs) as well, which longtime listeners know that that is a new discovery for me. And I still am pretty limited in what I read with mysteries, but I am coming to find that I like them. And the one that I really loved, I talked about one of these in a recent episode, but it's Maureen Johnson's Truly Devious series. And I shared before that I read book one on print and I liked it, but did not love it. And then I switched over and Kate Rudd is the narrator for the audiobooks, And I switched over for book two and I could not stop listening. So I have been through all four and went through the audio ones very quickly. So it's funny because I felt like it actually shaped my feelings toward the series as a whole. And so that's always a good sign of a, of a strong audiobook. So definitely very cool. Well, thank you so much for listening today. If you haven't shared with us yet, but did read Messy Roots, we would love to hear what you thought about the book. And don't forget, our schedule has changed. We released two episodes a month on Wednesdays, and we're still doing our buddy reads in our book club on Instagram. So you can find us there at Unabridged Pod. And we are reviving Patreon. So if you're looking for more bookish content, please sign up. You can just go to Patreon dot com and search for unabridged pod or find it on our website. Thanks so much for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at unabridged pod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to unabridged.